Welcome to PostWave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. And today we're going to take a second look at some of the ideas of Ian McGillchrist, who is a British neuroscientist and psychiatrist. And this book that he wrote called The Master and His Emissary deals with the differences in function between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And that's kind of been the basis of his whole career for, you know, the, the number of different angles he's he's taken on it. of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. Totally. So the beginning of this book, he starts with just laying some groundwork, uh, and he spends a fair amount of time talking about kind of the mind-body problem, which is uh, really fascinating, especially in this context. Yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to guess which which uh, which stuff of his was was most inter- interesting to you because you, yeah, I, yeah. I I I just tried to guess what made you want to talk about this more, <laughs> and like the the mind body stuff, and then also the the conscious. The, what, okay, I have to get the exact line. Do you remember what he said about uh, we can only be sh- we you know we're more sure of that consciousness is creating the brain than that brain is creating consciousness i think that was that was basically it yeah yeah totally so uh was that one of the parts that that kind of stood out to you and maybe you want to talk about it more or like what was that? yeah definitely um so so this was a really fascinating uh first chapter for me because all of these things he was saying are so much in line with my own philosophy and things that i've been trying to express for years and you know to varying degrees of success but he as this almost like an aside in this forward kind of lays out so eloquently and beautifully basically like all of those ideas (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah he's he's a really good writer for sure Mm. so he kind of starts out by asking the question like why why are there two hemispheres you know it's a kind of arbitrary pattern and he breaks down in fact that in the development stage of the the fetus uh initially the thing that becomes the brain is one conjoined object and then it seems to intentionally split as it's being developed yeah yeah and this is uh i forget when or where i learned this but i i think it's the case that if we watch an embryo develop we kind of see the we kind of see evolution happen in slow motion, right? I mean, literally, like, you know, from more from more primitive species that lived millions of years ago to, to present day, it kind of the their morphology kind of imitates evolution as the as the uh, as the embryo develops. Right. Yeah. I think he mentions that at some point in your development as a fetus, you actually have a tail, and then that yeah. disappears. Yep. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, the whole, maybe we can post a video, uh, a link to a video about it or something, but the, the whole process of embryonic development and, and when different 
you know, when, when different features differentiate and how the, the brain and the spinal cord and the digestive system and all that stuff gets formed. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. So I guess just to recap, his general uh, idea of the whole book is exploring the, the split brain phenomena, right? The fact that we have these two hemispheres and that they each seem to have their own idiosyncratic way of being. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, I mean, he starts, he starts right off by saying there are a lot of historical misconceptions about the differences between the hemispheres and a lot of them are exactly the opposite of how it is or it's more subtle or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although that's interesting, though, in the cases where it's more subtle, it's like even he mentions going back to ancient Greece, you know, they had some ideas that were, you know, kind of on the same trajectory, just not as well refined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Weren't they looking at kind of the like the imprints on the skull or something of the brain? Which I didn't. Or I think I'm thinking of something else. Yeah. Or yeah. Right. The imprints on the skull. Uh, and then that later, the nomenclature changed so that that term started to refer to the actual shape of the brain that caused those imprints. Mm -hmm. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know the brain created imprints on the skull at all. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like it's this burgeoning like mushroom inside of you that's just like pushing out, you know? <laughs> that's an image. <laughs> makes me think of uh adventure time where uh, gunther the penguin turns out to be uh orgalorg the space alien demonic god thing and when when he 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 she hit, hits their head on a on a rock or something then the their brain like pops out of the top of their skull it's like really hideous Yikes! so he kind of has this broad breakdown uh backed very strongly by evidence that the left brain deals very well with narrow and precise attention uh, this is for things like uh, pecking a seed grabbing a fruit or pursuing a rabbit while the right brain is very well attuned for broad and open attention which is useful for things like understanding your relation to others topology uh, maps general uh, whole systems and how they relate right right and i, th I think he also says uh that you know it's it's not necessarily that the the two sides are doing different things but it's what elements of the the processes are they are they performing right how are they how are they interacting with with different functions it's not that they aren't it's not, it's not like the mm. functions are necessarily distinct it's that they're they're interacting with, interacting with those functions in different ways yeah right and so there's definitely cross talk between the two hemispheres in order to uh, perform any task really um, and most of that uh, or I think maybe all of that crosstalk happens through the corpus callosum. Mm -hmm. That's the the piece of your brain that's just like the, a little connector between the two uh, at at the base where where the two hemispheres uh, sit. Right. And so yeah, so back in the in the I believe the the fifties and the sixties, 
they they started performing these procedures on patients who had epilepsy that uh, where they would sever the corpus callosum and uh, it cured the, the epilepsy at the time. Now we have, I think, medications that can do that a lot better, right? We don't need to have those operations anymore. But uh, at the time, uh, these procedures were being performed for, you know, for the good of the patients and with kind of the accidental result that it was a window into how our brains function in a really, really interesting and novel way. I think, you know, nothing, no, no, no discovery like that had ever been made before i don't think about mm. the human mind right yeah or or not necessarily scientifically i mean yeah, perhaps I mean, the ancient greeks were able to observe phenomena like this but didn't didn't apply the scientific method to it right right i mean yeah not not that people you know didn't attain like really interesting states of mind until you know until there until there was science but like this this kind of literally surgical uh change of the brain right Hmm. It was just uh, letting us kind of literally, you know, break it down into two separate pieces and it kind of interrogate each of them and and kind of figure out what we can about how the different halves are working. Like that's that's something I don't think you can get to from from just like uh, introspection and dissection. I feel like you kind of need like a some kind of experimental quality to it. Like in Buddhism, they fi- they figured out how to get to very, very interesting states of mind. But but and they I think they learned a lot of things about the mind in the process. But and same with you know the Stoics in the West, any any kind of meditative tradition. But they they didn't have this level of access to to the hardware, you know. Oh yeah, gotta have access to the hardware. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think you're totally right. Um, yeah, there's only so far you can go with uh, observations of people who have, say, had a stroke and part of their one hemisphere has been damaged. Right. One of the things I thought was really fascinating about these split-brain surgeries is that when they would sever most but not all of the corpus callosum, that in many cases when the, when the patient healed... It was remarkable that they seemed totally fine and like unaffected by that, aside from it healing the epilepsy. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's actually it, it's pretty hard to tell that that someone has had that procedure procedure done unless you kind of know what to look for. And I have heard that that all you know we'll we'll talk about some of these dramatic effects, but I've heard that a lot of them wear off eventually with time. That the person's brain kind of learns to cope with the 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 new reality and and it is true that people who even have you know lost a whole hemisphere completely can live totally normal lives especially if if that's that was kind of their condition at birth like their their brain our brains are that magic that they can re rearrange themselves to to work with what they have totally um so this corpus callosum he makes the point that most although not all of the interaction that's going on between the two hemispheres is actually inhibitory it inhibits the functionality of the other side of the brain right right he 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 makes the analogy to brakes right it's it's kind of like brakes in a car yeah um yeah yeah and, and it's interesting he does get pretty granular and say that sometimes it's not like brakes on a car sometimes it's like just uh 
putting up a wall kind of like saying if this information comes then block but without necessarily putting on the brakes but then he does go and say that yeah a lot of it is putting on the brakes yeah well he also didn't he also make the point that that in the, in the brake analogy it's it's kind of subtle because sometimes inhibiting something can uh produce more activity right hmm. um like if, if you think about the action of putting on the brake um you're actively doing something but the thing that you're actively doing is inhibiting inhibiting something right right yeah yeah so there, it's not necessarily as straightforward as, as you would think totally um it's really interesting though it's kind of counterintuitive that that your your mind would have evolved in such a way that it uh actually preferentially functions in not functioning or you know reduction in functionality yeah i mean we've talked about this before too i mean how how so much so much of your brain uh signal seems to be just just kind of noise right Mm. so i feel like yeah that, that must inhibiting things must have a huge role to play in turning that seemingly mm. random activity into consciousness and awareness as we experience it, experience it right yeah so, right yeah, wow like, some kind of filtering there yeah you're totally right like you, you you've used the analogy before like a radio and that we're just tuning in to uh certain frequencies yeah yeah i mean i, I, I don't yeah i'm not sure how, how i feel about that analogy but uh, oh it's, really it's, poss- <laughs> it's possible yeah um I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Depends what you mean. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess I just mean that kind of like what you're saying that like we have a lot of a lot of noise, and in order to interpret that noise as information, you need to have a a receptor looking for certain things in particular. In the same way that a resonant body will resonate at uh, its resonant frequency and will not pick up other frequencies when subjected to noise. Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely kind of a an interaction going on among the different parts of our brain that that yeah there are resonances or like you know resonances in the in the orbits of the planets that kind of thing that that um, that inform a lot of how the brain functions. Yeah. Uh, could you could you elaborate on that? Do you have any any data about like how the resonance of planets affects the brain? I, I totally believe that. I mean, we, we, we have experimental evidence that, you know, moon cycles are related to, you know, women's periods. Uh, that's not what I meant. I was just, I was just kind of making like a poetic analogy to like, oh, it's like, that's just the way nature works is resonances. Just like as as an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, because I mean, like, it seems really far fetched and like hippie out there kind of stuff, but at the same time, it's like could very well be true, you know. <laughs> so, 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 do you believe in astrology? This is this is way off on a tangent now. <laughs> this is way off on a tangent. I I really bristle at astrology. I think that a lot of people take it for granted that these things are true and that this knowledge is knowledge as opposed to fabrication and i know that it's kind of me being an asshat in order to have that perspective because i know that 
in truth, it's just like a large body of very useful insight and advice as to what it's like to be a human being. And as humans, we are so widely, our experience, our experience is so wide that all of it is basically applicable to anyone. And it's just like a way for people to engage with that, with that wisdom. And so it's, uh, kind of, kind of, kind of, uh, I, I know I'm being a prick to, to shit on astrology as much as I do, but I, I kind of do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have a little bit higher opinion of it now than I used to. I mean, I, yeah, I was, I, I, I've definitely kind of still in the position you described and, and, uh, but I, I guess the thing is, I, it's not, it doesn't seem entirely improbable to me that like different people born in different months of the year are going to have different kind of personality profiles or like different, you know, different proclivities, that kind of thing. It seems, mm. to, I mean, you know, it would obviously be a very, very small effect. And, and kind of like you were saying, a lot of these things are so like general, general uh, and not specific that, that they can apply to anyone, right? Which is kind of the game. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, okay, but but so you would you would okay, so we're distinguishing this resonance of, of the planets affecting our brains thing. We're considering that different than astrology, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess the distinction. Is I'm totally open to the possibility that that effect actually exists uh, in the same way that like the turning of the seasons affects our mood or uh i mean obviously in a much greater extent or you know the cycle of the moon affects uh hormone cycles in humans and uh and other things related to like plant growth um but there's a bit of a stretch i think to saying that well maybe a thing that's happening and to say that you understand why and how it's happening so much that you've built this formal system around it yeah yeah it's yeah the the, the interactions are obviously very 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 complicated and and i mean yeah i mean there's other people who say you know our our ancestors are you know whatever uh abnormalities in the the in the distribution of matter that like you know the seconds after the big bang like those are our real ancestors is the the abnormalities in the distribution of matter because <laughs> right? yeah. that's you know that's where we came from right we came from whatever mm. abnormalities were there yeah and so <laughs> <laughs> fascinating yeah. what a legacy yeah <laughs> but anyway yeah re- resonances and yeah i think interaction of 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 different different systems and i'm uh ben ben gertzel who's the the um the singularity net open cog uh artificial general intelligence guy um he's been putting out this series of lectures on on his his i think i think he feels like it's the culmination of his his career like like theory about agi and he's been working on this stuff since like the 80s or 90s i think um and it's he it's it's called patternist philosophy and it's it's thinking about patterns and patterns of patterns and patterns of patterns of patterns that kind of thing Mm. as and i i 
I haven't dug super deep into it yet, but um, I think it's things very much like that that are happening in the brain. I think I, I think that's the idea. Is you know, it's it's mm. just all it's all patterns. Totally. Uh, do you think that relates to the idea later on that you had you had first mentioned that about that everything we know about the brain is a product of consciousness? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that we can be sure that uh, that our consciousness affects the brain, but we can't necessarily be sure that the opposite is true. Yeah. Yeah. Or we. I. I mean. Yeah. We. I, yeah. We have. I think we have to be sure that consciousness is creating the brain, right? That because mm -hmm. because uh, consciousness is all there is, right? Uh, yeah. And. So a brain is an appearance in consciousness and it seems like that brain could be creating consciousness itself, but that's just based on the evidence from our consciousness. So, right. Yeah, totally. It's basically going back to the Descartes. Yeah. I, I think it's so crazy how people have been thinking about these things for like thousands of years and somehow in the time when we were alive, we're finally actually figuring out what, what's happening and starting to get to the bottom of some of these things, you know, it's, it's crazy. You know, that's an interesting statement. Um, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like Ian McGilchrist might disagree with what you just said. Why is that? So he's talking about kind of the way in which we observe things affects them. Uh, and that each thing that we're observing can be, viewed in myriad distinct ways. He uses the analogy of a mountain and that maybe for a prospector, the mountain is like a source of wealth and maybe for a painter, it's uh, interesting textures to, to paint and maybe for a naturalist, it's something else entirely. And, uh, or a geologist, it's like a formation of rocks, you know, and that all of these aspects of what the mountain is are absolutely true and it's uh, not quite accurate to say that any one objective perspective of what the mountain is is more true than any of those others. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, it's... it's... That's under the uh, subtitle "The Nature of Attention," and and he 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 takes this a little further in saying that science uh, purports to uncover like the objective truth, and I might equate this to what you were just saying. Like now, with all our scientific knowledge, we're having like this robust, granular understanding of the way the world is in so many different regards, and and yet like. Uh, what he says in the book here is that that's really not any more of an objective truth than any of the other truth. It's a, clearly a very useful truth, right? Because um, having that detached, uh, distant perspective gives us like a, a whole picture, a framework on which we can build but it's not any more true than any of the other perspectives. 
Yeah, that, oh, that, that, is, that is really interesting. And he quotes Thomas Nagel, uh, with the, who describes this as being the view from nowhere. Right, right. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting how he was talking about in that section that attention ch- literally changes what we're experiencing. Yeah. It has that power, right? Absolutely. Yeah, like the, the way in which you're perceiving someone, in what context you're perceiving them is going to actually change like how we interact with them and and as they perceive that they will they will change in response yeah yeah that, that's something i i think about a lot more is just that whenever you're having an interaction with someone it's your your two brains are just kind of doing a dance mm. like electronically for however long that happens right mm-hmm. and it's and for all intents and purposes for i mean for a lot of intents and purposes they're one system right yes like absolutely i i i I have a huge boner for this idea (laughs) i knew that before you even said (laughs) Uh, Uh, (laughs) yeah um this is something that i've uh, felt for a long time and in one major context is in eye contact i know you and i have talked about this to a fair extent in the past and i've had experiences not not only in those times where you like set aside 10 minutes and look into someone where i someone's eyes like we were talking about recently but also of meeting people's eyes even just strangers with a certain carrying a certain openness and attention into that experience. And there's a certain reaction that happens uh, sometimes where to my experience, it's as if I am seeing the person and they are seeing me. I am seeing that they are seeing me and they are seeing that I am seeing that Mm -hmm. they, you know, a feedback loop Mm -hmm. and that this feedback loop actually has its own distinct signature each individual experience of a feedback loop is a little bit distinct you know there's places in which the feedback loop propagates and places in which it does not and this mapping of uh information about how and in to what extent and in what ways the two people are perceiving each other is like an immediate transfer of information, right? It's it's like an understanding uh, that just burgeons between the two people, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. You say you experienced that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, making eye contact, eye contact with anyone is is it does something to your brain, right? It it you're you're wired to perceive that as a very kind of like not necessarily intimate but it's a very like primal action right i mean we've Mm -hmm. been doing that for as long as we've been a species and our you know at some point that 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 was maybe a lot of how we communicated before language right i mean definitely yep eye contact seems like so 
necessary if you have a, if you have a limited vocabulary. Hmm. Yeah, and and I I would I would go even further and uh, say it's not so much just that we're wired to to like enjoy that kind of thing, but that like you were saying those when you engage in that eye contact you are part of one entity together with that other person right you know and 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 that that uh attention changes who you are yeah totally or it it makes it more apparent that you're one with that other person because in reality you know we're all we're all one thing yes i mean that's absolutely true i would say that you could you can fairly say that in order to that that in engaging in that kind of activity um in that kind of directed attention that it actually does change the form that you are i think yeah yeah well yeah because you're you're not going to be it totally changes you because you can't be the same person just sitting on your own and you know sitting and looking into someone's eyes right you can't you can't as good as you are at visualizing things that's not gonna you're not gonna be able to get completely there yeah totally the act of perceiving fundamentally changes not only what you're perceiving but as in in mcgilchrist goes on and says it also changes the perceiver right If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. I thought all the stuff he was talking about with needing to kind of function laterally and in just kind of our day-to-day lives and then be able to kind of rise above it and observe it from a higher higher vantage point. I thought all that stuff was really interesting. Yeah, um, totally. And yeah, does, doesn't he kind of say that the left hemisphere is is more like laterally details on the ground and the right hemisphere is kind of like a, a higher higher view of things? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He says that the left brain is like picking apart details. It's, you know, how how do you pick the piece of grain off the ground rather than the piece of sand next to it? Mm-hmm. And uh, the way in which it does that is it takes uh, takes the input that it's perceiving and breaks it down into small uh, things. You know, it's concerned with whatness. It's what is this thing, and how is it distinct from other things? Right. And in that in that way, it. Um, that that also helps me understand why it's more likely to just come up with an answer. You know, it, it, that ties into the over-optimism that he's thinking about. It's, it's like uh, what, like if you ask it a question, even before it 
has fully prepondered the evidence it might just come up with an answer you know immediately right right (laughs) and part of that is just like a need to make distinctions you know this is the way things are you know Uh, yeah yep and the uh the right brain like you said is more concerned with systems and relationships and forming a complete picture of the world yeah including exceptions to the rule that kind of thing yeah 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 it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about like what that what that sense of verticalness actually feels like sense of verticalness well it, it kind of i mean it reminds me of either like dissociation or ego death or or, or something but i definitely uh d- doesn't it kind of have a have a a flavor of like yourself perceiving yourself and i guess that's kind of like the mm-hmm. opposite of ego death but it is is it kind of have like a uh, like a recursive self-awareness aspect to it. That's interesting. I mean, do you, do you need recursion in order to formulate complete pictures based on lots of uh, input data? Uh, I don't think so. How's <laughs> that? How's that relevant to to this thing, though? Oh, just that you know, our our senses are constantly uh, giving us an influx of data. And that, like we're saying, the two different hemispheres have a different approach in parsing that data. And um, I was just wondering if, like, in order to complete, have a complete understanding of how things are, that does does that need to be self-referential? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm I'm probably getting tripped up by the metaphor because if I think of seeing things vertically, I think of you know looking over my, you know, being like flying floating 10 feet above my head looking down at my head right uh-huh like that's that's kind of what i think but uh and that that definitely seems like self-referential right like i'm looking at myself but mm-hmm. that's not necessarily how it has to be yeah i mean you might be onto something i'm not sure um it's just that like yes it's good at understanding systems and i guess your relationship to those systems um but it kind of runs into that same problem that we've been talking about recently uh, with consciousness that you know how do you know what consciousness is if your only experience your only point of reference is through consciousness right right this is this is the problem yeah i think he he, he touches on consciousness pretty briefly i think right doesn't give doesn't put too much time into it yeah, although in another sense, all of this is deeply rooted to consciousness. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and that's one thing that's really interesting because, you know, he's asking the question, like, why do we have these two separate approaches to understanding the world side by side? Mm-hmm. And he puts forth some very compelling arguments. You know, we need, in one hand, to be able to tell the grain from the sand in in that kind of attention and then on the other hand we need to uh, i don't know watch out for predators or understand complex social systems and how like taking care of your children will help propagate your your lineage that kind of thing uh so we we need both of these approaches but it's important that these approaches remain distinct and in some regards separate 
in order for them to be those approaches, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and I, I wonder if that has something to do with how, like, the generalizability of human general intelligence, you know, being able to adapt to different situations. And I feel like a, in, a, in a system where, where things are, are you know, a little more segmented and, and kind of interacting in a, in a complex way, if that, if that could be what, what helps give our intelligence its, its kind of general quality. Totally. So he's it's in effect saying that this duality of our brain, of the way we approach existing in the world, necessarily tells us something about the nature of the world on a fundamental level. Um, he says in, uh, in the book here, we are not just looking at things in the world, a lump of rock or even a person, but the processes whereby the world itself, together with the rock or the person, might be brought into being for us at all. The very foundations of the fact of our existence, including any idea we might have about the nature of the world and the nature of the brain, and even the idea that this is so. Damn. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, he's a good writer. Yeah. I think I think he understands this, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I like that you got an old school paperback copy of it. Yeah, no more screens for me, except for when I'm coding. Which part was that that you just read? Page twenty nine, toward the bottom. Paragraph is a trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all of this he kind of uses to tie in his general idea, which is that the two sides of the brains have two different perspectives um, where in one there is a betweenness, a gradient, and, uh, you know, a unity, and in the other is a disparity. And that both, both of these perspectives are true and useful and valid uh, ways of looking at the world that help us navigate gracefully. Um, and that any any understanding must ne necessarily embrace both. Yeah, yeah. So he he goes on to say that these two perspectives are not only they're not two different ways of thinking about the world, but they are actually they are two different ways of being in the world. Yeah, I think that's that's a really really cool perspective changing idea. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that there's an interesting interplay with that and the idea that the brain is creating everything or consciousness is creating everything, mm. right? Because if, uh, like, what, what does it mean to be in a world if the world is just a creation of consciousness? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's all just, it's just thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's thinking about sort of implies like a separation, uh, it implies uh, what he talks about is how materialism is uh, nece necessarily a distinctly left brain approach of looking at the world because in effect all it is is saying that mind and body are the same thing you know there is no distinction it's just there's a one thing and you know that that's the left brain thing thinking about like 
is it a thing, you know, being concerned with whatness. Mm-hmm. And whereas the right brain might consider it to be a process, a way of being. Yeah, the right brain in general has a, has a more nuanced kind of overarching way of looking at things, right? Yeah, which I guess is why he calls the book the master and his emissary, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I think the idea is that the the master knows knows he needs the emissary, but the emissary doesn't know who needs the master. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe I think you're right then about what you were saying earlier that the right brain is more self referential. Yeah, because it seems maybe not self referential, but it's referential to the left hemisphere. And hmm. I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, this is, this is kind of where my, my concrete knowledge of this breaks down. But if it's, if it's yeah, I mean, obviously there, there are, there are you know, electrical, electrical signals happening within the right hemisphere itself, right? Mm. So it's definitely like interacting with itself. Well, I, I, think, I think it just comes down to that the, the right brain is self-referential because, because it knows its own needs. It knows that it needs the left brain, and in order to do that, it needs to have an understanding of itself. Oh, I see, I see what you mean. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess it also depends by what we mean by know, or like what, what we mean by does it know that it needs the left hemisphere, right? Like, what? <laughs> I guess, I mean, I guess, I guess if those are the words he put it in, then we can, we can think of it as as essentially meaning what he says mm-hmm. like it, that, it, that the right hemisphere does know that it, it needs the left but i guess i guess I, I think the the kind of the reasoning behind that was you know people who have right hemisphere strokes tend to be they, they tend to you know present a, a lot more normally and uh be uh be less depressed like it's it's less hard for them um yeah, part part of that could just be because they they don't lose their language ability as often. Mm. But uh, I think they say that like you know higher rates of depression in people who've had left hemisphere strokes, uh, it has something to do with the le- the right hemisphere not really going to be able to function as well without the left hemisphere. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're saying, maybe that has a lot to do with language being able to interact with the people around you. I mean, it's got to be really isolating not not to have that framework. So how far have you gotten into this? Oh, just this far, just the okay. first chapter. Cool. Okay, well, I, this is—I think this is actually right before what you were talking about, but kind of near the end of the this first chapter, he's uh, the distinction I am trying to make is between, on the one hand, the way in which we experience the world pre-reflectively, before we've had a chance to view it at all, or divide it up into bits. A world in which what later has come to be thought of as subjective and objective are held in a suspension which embraces each potential pole and their togetherness together. And on the other hand, the world we are more used to thinking of in which subjective and objective appear as separate poles. Yeah, yeah, totally. What do you think about that? Yeah. um, Yeah. And this, this goes in line with his understanding of how each each method of understanding the world each each hemisphere is a howness as opposed to a whatness you know it's a method in which we experience the world rather than uh its own distinct uh world right 
which actually I think then there's a paradox at the heart of this because he at other times says that each individual experience of the world is its own world. Uh, <laughs> where, so so that, that's like directly, directly contradictory. But that's kind of at the heart of this whole like division, right? That's the whole point, right? There's two different ways of looking at the world mm-hmm. and each one is distinct from the other and, you know, like can't in, in many ways can't abide the other is contradictory to the other and yet they complement each other and provide a richer understanding yeah see so, yeah something something still just seems really beautiful about that being the way that nature produced general artificial intelligence you know <laughs> Assu- assuming that's that's what we have because people argue about that i mean but, natural intelligence right well yeah, but but some people say like general intelligence, like what do you actually mean by that? Because our intelligence is still very domain specific, right? It's domain specific to be living as a human, mm-hmm. right? But it's it's not like, you know, uh Yeah, it's not necessarily like as general as it could get. Mm-hmm. But just yeah, the fact that that kind of that kind of bifurcation or or interplay the fact that that's what produces intelligence is just amazing. Absolutely. Duality at the heart.